Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman, recording in my home studio here in Fukuoka. And back with me again is Matt Alt of altjapan.com and author of several books, most recently Pure Invention. And we are back to discuss Chokichi Takamine and his time in America after our last episode, which covered his early life in Japan and everything that he had done to prepare for this moment. So welcome back to the show. Thank you. Speaking of invention, I mean, this guy is the man of invention, is he not? Uh, Joe Kichi Takamine? No question. I, as you said, when we left things off, he had just kind of come back uh, to the States to start this uh, Takamine ferment company. But this is right where things start getting interesting because his wife's mother, who had kind of lured him and her daughter back to the States, you know, I'm sure also for personal reasons as well, she probably wanted to see her daughter. She had a lot of connections. She introduced Takamine to Joseph Greenhut, who is the president of the Illinois Whiskey Trust. And that trust, I guess kind of an association. I, I don't think we have trusts like this anymore. We're not allowed. <laughs> yes, I, yes, it's antitrust, is it not? That's right. Um, the trust was the largest producer of distilled spirits in America at the time. And they had 65 distilleries producing over 80% of all spirits in the country. Wow, that does sound like a trust, does it not? We need a trust buster. Yeah. <laughs> 80% of all spirits. And America was a spirit-soaked country at the time. That's right. I mean, it was the, the per capita consumption of distilled spirits was off the charts compared to what it is now. Right. And I mean, if you think about today's spirits manufacturers, I think maybe a conglomerate like Diageo might have 65 distilleries across like 40 countries or something like that. Right. Right, 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 right. Not just 65 in one country. No, exactly. Yeah. And they certainly don't own 80% of the entire spirit market in any nation, I don't think. Yeah. You know, let's hope not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. As we finished up with last week, Takamine patented the use of koji for alcohol production. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and listen to that one before this one. This is a follow up to that. This is continuing his story. But he licensed that patent to the trust. So he had met Joseph Greenhut through his mother-in-law, was able to license the patent. A serial part of his business model was to license patents. He wasn't necessarily producing things himself. He was selling or licensing those patents to other interests. But he did actually do the work. Genius, by the way, because that's something that would not naturally occur to Japanese at the time. That business model was a complete Western business model. I think. And that that idea that just because you came up with something didn't mean that you were necessarily the one who should exploit it, that you could actually sell the rights to it was just so forward thinking. I mean, he would do great now in like modern life. That's a great point. And I think maybe maybe his research on his honeymoon paid off. Remember, he studied U.S. patent law. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like cuddling. He's got his wife on one arm and like the patent law book on the other. You know, I can we can we can one can one can imagine. That's right. So he licenses the patent to the trust, and they begin experiments actually at the Manhattan Distillery in Peoria, Illinois in 1891. It's crazy to think that there was experiments to make koji whiskey in America in the 19th century. Yeah, it's because it's pretty wild. It's like, if this had succeeded, spoiler alert here, if this had succeeded, we would have had a, a sort of Japanese whiskey boom more than a century before it actually happened globally. Although it's, it's really key to say here. 
when we talk about this whiskey, this they were not trying to make something like we think of as like high end Japanese whiskey now. Like Japan now is associated, it's like the Rolex of whiskeys, you know, Toho Takamine 21. Yes, $500 a glass. Yes, sir. You know, back then, that was not what was happening. He came up with a way to make whiskey, which was already cheap, mm-hmm. a couple cents cheaper. This probably was some pretty tough to drink stuff, and it was aimed at the low end of the market, more like Nika Black than one of these high-end single malt type things. Yeah. So the experiments begin. Now, you said whiskey was to become cheaper. That was basically a, a cost-cutting measure. How it became cheaper was it was cutting out the malt and malt was expensive to produce. And there was an entire maltsters union that may or may not have had yes. mob connections, this being Illinois in the 1890s. Yes, Exactly. And there ended up being a mysterious fire in the Manhattan distillery, in the laboratory where they were doing the experiments. Dr. Takamine was reportedly in the building at the time, was able to escape to the basement and hide as the fire blazed and destroyed the laboratory. It's pretty clear an accelerant was used. Now, they weren't dealing with with high-proof alcohol, so it's possible that that was just part of why it seemed that way. I'm pretty sure we saw this in an episode of Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. <laughs> it, it really it really does sound like that kind of uh, mysterious meth lab basement from those series, like getting torched by rivals. And by the way, when you're named the Maltsters, I think you're allowed to get away with whatever you want. <laughs> the Maltsters. It does. It sounds like some kind of, I don't know, like the the some kind of bad guy. Peaky Blinders. Right? <laughs> from a Marvel movie. Or exactly. <laughs> Peaky Blinders for sure. Definitely. It's, it's like very steampunky, you know what I mean? That's right. Uh, but mysterious. I'm sure the fact that an Asian guy was behind all of this was also a factor in this quote-unquote mysterious fire, and I'm sure that if he had not made it out, that none of the maltsters would have shed a tear. Yeah. So it's very lucky for us that he was able to get away. Right. Yeah, this damn foreigner coming in and stealing our jobs, right? Yeah. It's uh, I mean, there's people like that today. Can you imagine what it was like in like Peoria in 1891? I, 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 it, it unfathomable. Yeah. No question. No question. You know? Now, fortunately, they didn't give up. They actually rebuilt, they repaired the distillery, and they actually went into production, commercial production of the Takamine process whiskey in December 1894. Right. So Japan whiskey, the hot new thing. Or not, because did it really get, this is one of the things I have always struggled to to figure out, because when I heard this happen, I, my mind was blown. Yep. Japanese whiskey in the, in, the, in the heart of America yep. at the turn of the 20th century, late 19th century, like what? You know, it's like discovering, I don't know, some, it, it just seems like an anachronism, something so out of time. Yep. Uh, yet there's not much reported about it. Did it actually get widely distributed? So that's the thing. They started production December 1894, but there was this Sherman Act, which was enacted in 1890. This piece of legislation was an antitrust act. It was virtually never used until the 20th century. It was really Teddy Roosevelt who who really used the, the Sherman Act as a cudgel. Mm-hmm. But the one time it was used prominently in the 19th century, in the first decade of its existence, was to break up the Illinois Whiskey Trust. Nice use of the word cudgel. <laughs> in 1895, I appreciate that. In, in February of 1895, the Whiskey Trust is forced by the government to suspend all production and goes into receivership. The Manhattan Distillery is sold to new owners. 
and they revert to malting. So they made the Koji whiskey commercially from December 1894 to eight, uh, February 1895. So it was in production for three months. <laughs> wow. I can almost guarantee you the, the new owners had no idea what it was and didn't care. But I can't imagine they just dumped it out. I'm guessing it got blended into other products and just sold as as malt whiskey or as some other sort of whiskey. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, just to take a step back, 1894 was actually the year that Masataka Taketsuru was born. Ah, another another big name. That's right. This is the father of Japanese whiskey. And Takemine is in America making whiskey the year that he's born. And it, it's amazing. I, I wish you could spin the clock forward for these guys a little bit so they could see what Japanese whiskey became. Right. Because back then, Japan was not associated with high quality, high class things. You know, it was just this this kind of seen as a backwater. And I, I don't know that was whiskey even seen as a kind of classy thing in America back then? I, I think it was just kind of a beverage to be consumed. You know, obviously people enjoyed it very much. Was, was there like single malt tastings and things back then? I don't think so. This is a very different sort of era. No, whiskey would not have been a premium product at this time anywhere in the world. Right. Scotch actually would be casked at the distillery and then immediately put on a boat and sent to the cities. And the aging would be whatever happened while it was in the cask before it got poured out to customers. Wow. So at this time, even scotch wasn't really a premium product and certainly not American whiskey. You know, you see those old Westerns and they've got the bottle of whiskey that comes out and it's, you know, yes. it's a nickel or whatever. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, definitely. Definitely. So, you know, actually, I've I've heard that in the Wild West, gin was much more likely consumed mm-hmm. because, you know, you could make it quickly, you could flavor it quickly and you could you could drink it quickly. Sure. That that makes a lot of sense. I mean, gin was popular spirit all over the world at that time, I think. Yeah. But getting back to the kind of the collapse of this dream of, of making this whiskey, Takamine sued in federal court to get his patent back because he's like, look, this is my idea. I licensed it. I, I should own it. Mm-hmm. And you have a Japanese immigrant suing in federal court in Chicago, Illinois yeah. in 1895. Didn't go well. Yes. Not a good time to be a minority uh, going up against the majority in America of that era. That's right. Now, his health problems flare up again. His liver... Uh, or kidneys end up giving him some problems. He can't continue the lawsuit. He gives up. He doesn't appeal. And now he's this guy who's considered a troublemaker, right? Yeah. He was the upstart who tried to mess up the maltsters. Then he ended up suing in federal court, which annoyed everybody, I'm sure. And he's still living in Chicago, which still has the mop. So it's speculation only on my part, but I think he decided it was time for a new start. And he up and moves his family to New York City in uh 1897. Still, just looking back, it's amazing to think that, you know, if the maltsters had not run him out of town and God knows who else was on his back at that time, if he had succeeded, Koji whiskey could be an established American style of whiskey today. It would have been pioneered in America, like America's heartland, you know, even though it's a Japanese fungus, uh, uh, Koji mold. But whatever the case is, it would have been an American style. And it's just amazing to think how close we came. And then everything kind of fell apart. Yeah, it really is. I mean, Japan loves the boomerang, right? You've got something that's Japanese that's becomes popular overseas, and then suddenly it's back to popular in Japan. Yes. I can completely imagine today in that alternate universe, us talking about Jokichi Takamine as the father of Japanese whiskey, as Koji whiskey production boomerangs back into Japan, they start domestic production. Yes. Right. 
Well, you know, Japan is famed as a nation that takes things that it didn't create, but then kind of perfecting them. Mm-hmm. Japan definitely didn't invent whiskey, but this could arguably be called a kind of perfection of it, or at least a, a modification of it. So it's it's very much Japanese style innovation happening in America, kind of under the noses of Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, without any Americans really realizing it at the time. Sure, sure, and of course, at that time, I don't think people really understood the process very well—the the biochemistry behind it, the organisms, and all that. Sure. And then, you know, the other thing, and we've talked about it in the past on this podcast, is that koji, because it creates amylase and protease, it imparts umami. Yes. So you're essentially getting another layer of, of flavor in the drink that, that would be absent from a malted process. And it's, you know, umami, umami is just starting to be discovered around this time, I think, with uh, experiments on konbu, mm-hmm. you know, seaweed. So there's a lot of, of the kind of roots of what we think of as modern culinary culture and all sorts of modern cultures that are being pioneered 100 years ago mm-hmm. uh, in Japanese laboratories and, and by Japanese people in American laboratories and, uh, and things like that. So he's 41 years old in 1895. A couple of years later, in 1897, he moves to New York. This is kind of his act two. Uh, a lot of his dreams have come to naught. What, what happens now for the act two, this, the second arc of his life? Yeah, so he wasn't a one-track guy. So actually, we got to jump back to 1894, because in parallel to the whiskey-making process, he incorporates the Takamine International Ferment Company, so the privately-owned company gets integrated into a company with investors. He has bigger plans now, and his in-laws are his first investors. The next year, he releases Takadiastase, which is a koji-based digestive aid. Ah, interesting. Right? Koji creates amylase and protease, which breaks down starches and proteins, so that can help with your digestion. So it becomes basically... Like a yeah, like tums, rolades, yep. like a, an antacid. That's right, but a fermented, a natural version of that, right? Interesting. Oh boy, it makes you want to try it. Clearly, alcohol wasn't his only interest, right? He had his fertilizer, these medicines, and other inventions, and so he ends up licensing again. He's doing his licensing game again. He's not making takadiastase. He licenses it to the Park Davis Company, which is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in America at the time. Yeah. And he even begins to export it back to Japan. Takamine is the poster child for work smarter, not harder. And and he was also working hard, but he's working hard and really smart. Because, you know, in Japan, then he establishes another company, Sankyo Shoten, which is this his own import company, basically. So he's like profiting on both ends of this as the patent holder in the States and then the importer of record in Japan. And that company that he founded became, uh, over many twists and turns, Daiichi Sankyo, which is now one of the biggest pharmaceutical firms in Japan. I mean, this is like $7 billion US in annual revenue. So his innovations are still paying dividends today. Yeah. I mean, he clearly knew what he was doing. I like that work smarter, not harder. Uh, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> he definitely describes Jokichi Takamine. As we said, he moves to New York City in 1897 with his family, and he ends up setting up a laboratory in Harlem. And within just three years, he makes a absolute landmark discovery in the history of medicine. This is a guy who abandoned medicine, right? He fell in love with applied chemistry, gave up on medical school. Right. But in his laboratory in Harlem, he isolates adrenaline, which is the first human hormone isolated in human history. Yes. This is major, major, major stuff. And actually, well, adrenaline. I mean, it's used in hospitals today. They inject it into somebody to restart their heart after, you know, and all sorts of other applications. How many millions and millions of lives has this saved uh, over the over the, the generations? It's, it's probably impossible to count. 
such an illustrious career. In 1905, at the age of 50, he's just 50 years old, he establishes the Nippon Club, which is a private gentleman's club for Japanese businessmen, because those other clubs, the private gentlemen's clubs, wouldn't allow him to enter because he wasn't a white American, basically. Let's just put a fine point on it. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so by this time, he's actually gained notoriety in Japan as well. And so as a result, remember, he met his wife at the 1884 World's Fair in New Orleans. At the 1905 World's Fair, Japan has a pavilion. The Japan Pavilion is a gorgeous, large replica of one of the emperor's summer palaces, hand-built by Japanese craftsmen using traditional Japanese techniques, and it's erected in St. Louis on the fairgrounds. Now, when the World's Fair ended, the Japanese government didn't really want to break the thing down and take it back to Japan, but it was also too valuable to just throw away or leave in St. Louis. So the emperor gave it to Jokichi Takamine. Hey, man, just take, take this. this. It's pretty amazing. You're you're on like that like kind of pleasant terms with the with the with the emperor. And actually, when you read about the St. Louis World's Fair, there were a lot of buildings and things constructed, but most of them were really low quality. They they actually deteriorated quite rapidly because they were just like kind of facades. Mm-hmm. They were just designed to kind of create an atmosphere. Only the Japanese pavilion was, in, in classic Japanese fashion, obsessively constructed by actual shrine carpenters. Like these are these are kind of the special forces of carpenters in Japan who make like temples and shrines and stuff like that. That's right. They went over and made the real thing. It was the real thing. It wasn't a simulacrum. Yep. It was it was like an exact copy down to like the tiniest like bit and finish of the wood. Yep. So and then it all went to Takamine, who took it up to the Catskills, right in New York. He did. Yeah. So he he basically paid out of his own pocket. He's insanely wealthy by this time. He has it deconstructed, broken down, put on rail, shipped to the Catskills, and rebuilds it on his 100-acre estate in the Merrillwald Club. Now, remember, he couldn't join the gentlemen's clubs in New York because he was Japanese. Right. But he was able to join the Merrillwald Club, which is a private club dating from the 1800s. It was actually an artist community up in the Catskills. The Merrillwald Club still exists today. And he rebuilt his his palace there in the Merrillwald Club, and he named it Shofuden. That's the name of the palace, and it's still there. It is still there. So amazing. I would love to go see it. I was fortunate enough to visit last fall. Uh, it was the first time that the new owners had opened it to the public since they purchased the property. It's no longer on a 100-acre estate. The property got chopped up, and now it's on a much smaller plot of land. It's gone through a life. It was a restaurant. It was a retreat. It was just falling apart. It was just, you know, abandoned. Well, I mean, it's a hundred and some years old. Yeah. Yeah. In an all wood structure, right? Yeah. 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 The new owners actually have decided to renovate it. And so they got far enough along in the renovation that they decided to throw a party there. And I I was fortunate enough to be able to go and, and see it. It was very, very cool. Lucky you. You should have brought a Ouija board. You should have brought a Ouija board and communicated with Joe Kichi. We'll put this in the show notes, but their Instagram account is amazing because they're documenting all of the reconstruction. Oh, that's great. That's really great. So really, really interesting. And it's a nice couple who are, have been uh, multi-generational members of this Marowald Club. The club itself is like very unpretentious artist community vibe, just super warm and welcoming. We ended up after the opening of Shofuden and that party that they held, which was in the afternoon... We all went down to the clubhouse, which was on the lakeside, and sang karaoke till about midnight. Quite an experience. Yeah. So 
Shofudan in upstate New York. They're still living in New York. They moved the ferment company to New Jersey. I guess the thing that he, he maybe is most well known for is the donation of the cherry blossom trees to Washington, D.C. I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So those cherry blossom trees were the first ones I ever saw. Um, it was his money and he he refused to take credit for it. He wanted the Japanese government to take credit for it. And, and they are credited for it. They wanted to do it too. They just, they used his uh, funding to make it happen. So anytime you go to Washington, D.C. and you're walking on the mall, you're kind of surrounded by an example of this guy who faced horrific racism, but yet still loved us nonetheless. And that's just a really, I, I'm, I'm still touched by that today. No question. And it, it is a beautiful donation that was made. The trees still exist. They have the Cherry Blossom Festival every year in D.C. He also donated many of the trees that exist around New York City, around Manhattan, ah. both around Grant's Tomb and Columbia University, as well as other places in the city. And yeah, probably what he's best known for, like as far as what's most visible to Americans today, besides the adrenaline, would be uh, the cherry blossoms. Yes, definitely. And he was 55 years old when he did that. Like, what a life. It is a, an incredible life. Unfortunately, I don't think he had much, very much longer. That's right. Didn't he pass away, I, I think about 10 years after he donated the cherry blossoms, 1922, was it? That's right. It was July 22nd, 1922. So just had the 100th anniversary of his passing last year. Oh, wow. Uh, he's buried at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx and his mausoleum is still there. And it's not that hard to visit. So if you have an opportunity, go up and, and seek it out. Absolutely. That's, that's the real place to do the uh, Ouija board, I guess. Ghost, <laughs> like, right. ghost hunting. I, 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 you know, I honestly, I'm joking, but you know, I really, really wish it were possible to talk to ghosts because I would love to have a long conversation with Jokichi Takamine, among many other people. Yeah, very, very, very high in the list of, of uh, historical figures that would be fascinating to talk to. That you certainly want to drink with, you know, um, <laughs> you know, because what a life, what a legacy. I mean, he, he, you, he, I think you can make the argument that he is one of the most important Japanese immigrants to the U.S. of, of, of anybody out of his nation in the 19th or 20th centuries. Just such a, such a transformative figure. Yeah, with all apologize to, to Ichiro. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely right. He's yes, definitely. Definitely. No, I mean, I more power to anybody who immigrates and and betters themselves in in whatever nation they move to. But very few people have notched up as many amazing discoveries and inventions as as uh, Joe Kichi did. Yeah, really, really incredible life, and and uh, you know, it's it's been such a pleasure to learn about him through my book research and conversations that we've had. And uh, I actually met his last surviving American relative last last fall as well. Oh wow! Uh, it's his uh, would be his great great granddaughter I who uh, now lives in Oregon. Did she know like about him? Like, did she know what he had done? Yep, she has a lot of the the heirlooms and the the old photographs and personal items of the family. Her father was Jokichi the third. Jokichi the third. Yep. Wow. Okay, they really like to keep the name up. That's great, though. Jokichi passed away. His wife lived for quite some time after that. He died in the 20s. Yep. Uh, his wife lived until the early 50s. She actually remarried a couple years after he passed away, uh, married a rancher from uh, Tucson, Arizona, and she passed away at 88. But she was tellingly buried next to Jokichi after she died, not next to her new husband. That's right. But she did get her name listed as Caroline Takamine Beach. So I guess that was the compensation to her second husband. You probably had to take your husband's name back then. I, I don't think there was any way around that. You know, this is a very different time for women. Yeah. You know, 1920s. That's that's true. What about his kids? Yeah. What about his kids? I mean, Ebenezer and Jokichi Jr. 
yeah, we haven't talked about them too much since we introduced them, but unfortunately, not a happy story very much for either of them. Jokichi Jr. actually died under really mysterious circumstances in his early 40s when he fell from a hotel window in New York City in Manhattan. Oh, man. Uh, in 1930. And he was a notorious drinker and womanizer. And he had checked into the hotel with a woman who was not his wife. Ooh. So we don't know if it was suicide or if the woman pushed him out the window or if a jealous husband pushed him out the window. What a sordid story. Oh, my God. Yeah. It. Wow. And this was not something they were able to keep out of the press. This actually did it, tremendous damage to the family, the reputation. I'm sure. And it ended up spending a lot of the money, uh, the resources the family had on, on damage control and trying to recover from that. What a total waste. But, you know, he's probably somebody who who we would think of now who had a, an addiction. Yeah. Like, obviously, this is somebody who had a problem with alcohol. This isn't this isn't some guy who liked to drink and enjoy the company of fine women. This is a guy who obviously was kind of out of control. And it was a difficult time in, in American and human history, I think, to seek help for those kinds of things. So yeah. uh, that's that's really a tragedy. But what that's, that's, so that's that's Joe Kichi Jr. What happened to Ebenezer? Ebenezer, Evan, as he went by, he he ended up dying in his 60s, around the same age his father was when he passed. What was notable for him is he actually was granted his American citizenship the year before he died. They didn't have birthright citizenship at this time. So because Jokichi Jr. and Ebenezer were not born to American parents, they actually, their wives, when they got married, had to give up their American citizenship to marry them. Wow. Geez, different time. So it's a time of anti-immigration policy, right? Well, a huge anti-Asian and anti-Japanese uh, sentiment at the time. When you go back and you study, you know, the lead up to World War II, um, one of the things that kept coming up again and again uh, when when the Japanese leaders were debating what to do was that they knew how badly Japanese immigrants were being treated on the West Coast. Not people like Jokichi, who's a wealthy, famous person, mm -hmm. but the average Japanese immigrant who was probably working in farming, they were kind of hired help back then, and they were treated like second-class citizens. So that's the kind of historical backdrop to that. Sure. Yeah, in some ways, you wonder if, if Takamine had lived longer and had been in, in that world of seats of power on the East Coast, if he- Could he have advocated? Yeah. Could there have been a different result? That led to, you know, I, I, compared to what ended up leading to, you know, obviously tremendous loss of life in the Pacific War. So definitely, definitely. But that's that's a real bummer. But let's shift <laughs> gears a little bit here and talk more about Takamine's whiskey, because that is not a bummer. It is something really amazing. That's right. Yeah. And that's why we're talking about him here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to the whiskey for sure. Obviously, it's Japan Distilled podcast, not the History of Japan podcast, which I do highly recommend. Right. Uh, Isaac Meyer does a great job with the History of Japan podcast. So shout out to him. Yeah. So such a fascinating guy, Chokichi Takamine. And that's why we wanted to talk about him. His Koji whiskey started with him in 1891. And sadly, it seemed to have died with him. It really was not something that carried on. And we seemed like his story might be completely forgotten. This, this kind of failed experiment. He had so many successes in his life. And, right. and in many ways, I think you could think of the whiskey as a failure because it ended up not becoming a commercial product. So what do you know about what he made, what he was actually making? Do you have any details on that? Yeah. So the, in the research that I've been able to dig up, it seems like he's making a whiskey using probably growing koji on cereald wheat. So a ground up uh, wheat, because they wouldn't have had access to the polishing machines that would give you what koji likes to eat, which is just the center of the grains. 
So you had to give it access to those starches on the inside of the grains. Interesting. And so it seems like grinding it was the solution that he came up with. And I think that's why it took three years. Besides the mysterious fire, it took them a while to get a solid koji propagation going to get a successful fermentation. And that must have been the first koji propagation in the States, I'm assuming. I think there's virtually no doubt of that. Yeah. So this is amazing. I mean, I love weeded whiskeys even now. Like a weeded whiskey is a style. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, and yeah. there are some really great ones. W.L. Weller, I think, is a weeded whiskey. Yeah, weed and bourbons are, are very nice, for sure. They're very, very nice. Yeah. So that's that's how he does his starter fermentation. But I think he probably was using corn and other commodity grains. Mm-hmm. You know, probably whatever was cheap to get their hands on because they were on to keep the price low. Anything that would, that would sacrifice and, and ferment to create the alcohol. And it would have been double pot distilled because this would have predated the introduction of the of the column still to the Illinois market to that region of the, of the world. Right. And then at that time they were they were putting it in the cask at between fifty and fifty one percent alcohol. It's not like these sixty five seventy percent alcohol double pot distilled spirits you get now. Right. The fermentations weren't as efficient. You weren't getting the yield of alcohol right back then that you would get today with modern techniques. And that fifty to fifty one percent alcohol was the typical entry proof at the Manhattan distillery at that time. And let's be clear, you mentioned it earlier, he wasn't making a premium product. He was making something meant to be affordable and even cheaper than malted whiskey. Thus the upset maltsters who decided to burn down the distillery. Those maltsters. That's right. I'm still mad at them. I got to tell you, I mean, I really wish Koji whiskey would have become an established style. It would have made our job so much easier trying to promote shochu and awamori uh, to to the Western world. And and your and your own Takamine Koji eight year old whiskey from Honkaku Spirits. Um, I you know this went on the market what two years ago? That's right. It was released in uh, April twenty twenty one in the U.S. It's such great stuff. It is. It is so. It, it is. It's, it's. It's. How to put this? There's a similarity to you know whiskeys and bourbons, and then just an umami like a, a kind of mildness that's completely different yet complementary. Very smooth drinking. Very, I'm sure it's much, it tastes much better than whatever he was going to be making for the Illinois Whiskey Trust because it's a very premium type of spirit. And I don't want this to turn into some kind of like, you know, <laughs> what is a stealth marketing campaign? I, I, I bought two bottles of this with my own dime when I was in the States uh, over the holidays and, uh, and I'm still working my way through them. They're just, they're just, it's just great. I, I really love what you did. Well, I appreciate that. That was in Honkaku Spirits, uh, which, uh, Christopher's the, the founder of that company. He, um, well, we working with the Shinozaki distillery, uh, ended up reviving this Takamine style, the Takamine process. Uh, it's hundred percent barley. So it's not the same mash bill. Right. It's polished barley rather than cereal wheat, right? There are differences certainly in how it's produced, but again, it's double pot distilled. And then it's aged in a blend of ex-bourbon and virgin uh, white oak casks uh, right here in Fukuoka. It's been getting rave reviews, including from yourself, which i uh, gl- very glad to hear how much you enjoy it. It actually won Best Japanese Whiskey at the 2021 John Barleycorn Awards, which was... Which is ironic because it's based on an American <laughs> style. <right>. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, as, as we talked about in episode seven about the Japanese labeling standards, it doesn't actually qualify as Japanese whiskey, but the Barleycorn Awards weren't going right. to consider that when they were doing their judging. Yeah. Is this kind of like the Reinheitsbot, uh, uh, the, the German beer purity law, where like a lot of things that are on the market today wouldn't be recognized as beer by that? You know, that that sort of, uh, uh, you know, legal legalese. Is that what's happening? A little bit. It's it's funny, like a lot of things that are sold domestically as whiskey in Japan do not qualify as whiskey under the new rules. Right. 
but it's really to protect their premium export market. That's the purpose of those rules. You know, it retails for about a hundred bucks a bottle uh, in the states, and normally I would never ever mix anything like that. But I have to say, it goes real, real nice in a highball, which is the, probably the way that most whiskey is consumed in Japan mm-hmm. today. I would, I would say, uh, highballs are absolutely, you know, uh, whiskey and soda are just absolutely giant um, at any bar you go to. And which is kind of funny because I think the word highball is kind of old fashioned sounding in the States. Like it sounds like something my grandparents would have asked for, like, a you know, down in the rumpus room <laughs> or something like that. But um, it's I, I think if you could bring it to Japan, it would just do gangbusters as a in, in that style, in that kind of cocktail. As I understand it, there are discussions happening Ooh. to see if that if, if it could uh, be sold over here. Currently, that's not allowed, but um, perhaps in the future and. We've talked about this before on various episodes and on our live stream and everything, but it's interesting that these regulations protect malt whiskey. Right. When malted alcohol has been produced in Japan for, what, 150 years, if we're generous, with some beer production? Yeah. And Koji has a 1,300-year history in Japan. Japan, I think, is is one of the few nations, however, where like the bureaucracy is dictating how things are distilled and brewed more than tradition. And this is very obvious in the beer world where they actually tax fermented beverages based on their malt content. So all of these companies in Japan have come up with maltless beverages. They're called, um, you know, third type beers. And uh, they're drinkable I guess, but they're the, not my speed, uh, but they're cheaper by a couple cents off each can or the equivalent of a couple cents off each can. And they sell like gangbusters in Japan. And, but it's not, they bother me because they're, they're end runs on a law. They're not like innovations in, in distilling. Well, they're, they're not distilled spirits. They're not, they're not innovations in beverage making. Mm -hmm that were done for craftsmanship, craftspersonship. They were done purely to skirt this law. And so I would love these laws to be repealed. And like, I want the, you know, the government should be taking their cut, whatever, that's fine. But I I don't like that their laws interfere with the processes like they do. Yeah. Fortunately, that that law has been uh, revised and it will be implemented over, we phase in over time. So they're going to harmonize the taxes across the various beer and beer-like products. Beer-like products, exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. And so you're right. So much of Japan, Japanese alcohol production is dictated by by regulatory, uh, where yes. Takamine was able to make his whiskey in America, which was the wild, wild west. Literally. <laughs> That's right. American whiskey really can be made in almost any way possible, as long as it meets some very, very broad right. guidelines being distilled alcohol produced with grains and aged in oak, right? That's basically American whiskey. Definitely. But how you ferment what grains you use, lots and lots of flexibility. Japan has much narrower guardrails around all of that. Right. Well, back to Takamine, uh, you know, I know the Shinozaki and, and Honkaku spirits uh, definitely revived his his legacy with that undoubtedly improved uh, version of his product. But I don't think you're the only ones using Mr. Uh, the Good Doctor, are you? That's right. So there are a couple of rice whiskeys sold in the US, which use a similar process. Again, it's Koji fermented rice whiskeys. These are uh, Fukano and Oishi are the two most prominent brands. And then uh, domestically, actually, Whistlepig, which is a a craft whiskey maker in America, they released what they call their Boss Hog Samurai Scientist bottling. This was their number six (laughs) Boss Hog bottling. These are super premium whiskeys. This, This was a rye whiskey 
finished in umeshu casks and the little whistle pig they have this little animated character and he's decked out in a samurai outfit he's the stopper he's the cap on the bottle yes yeah and uh i think it retailed for around 400 was what they were selling it for oh my and God. if you can find wow. it now they're at least a thousand dollars a bottle if not more there were some if there are any listeners send us drams <laughs> we'd love to try it i i was fortunate enough to be able to try it oh how was it it was it was fine Right, right. You know, I I do like rye whiskey as as I know you do. And it was good. I don't think it's thousand dollar a bottle good, but it's also rare. Yes. And the glass is beautiful. Like the actual packaging is pretty cool. Right, right, right. Well, very little. I'm I'm somebody who's pretty pragmatic when it comes to things like that. I top off at about a hundred bucks a bottle and it'd be real tough to get me to go over that. Yeah, but. I hear you. Yeah, it's great stuff. So what are you what are you sipping on these days? Why don't we usually end these? You asked me last time, so I'm going to ask you first this time. What are you sipping on? So actually, I've got I poured myself a little dram. I guess the nice thing about working with Honkaku Spirits and uh, and Shinozaki is that I'm actually sampling a a test blend Ooh. of an evolution of of Takamine. Really? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it has, it has the character, it's the same sweetness and the little bit of, um, almost like cherry note, um, and, and the, the, I guess what vanilla and caramel that you get in the original, right. but it's just a little bit different. Uh, and I had a little sample bottle of that. So I'm, I'm sipping on that. And oh, you show off, oh, you big, <laughs> you big show off. I, I, I can't wait to try it when it comes out. As for me, I'm not, I'm not, uh, yeah, of course I'm, I'm drinking Takamine, uh, uh, processed whiskey when I can, but my current favorite bottle is one that a friend brought back for me. Uh, it's Woodenville Rye from, uh, Washington State. Oh, okay. Uh, and it is, it is a really, really nice, flavorful, peppery, uh, sweet, peppery, spicy, uh, rye. Uh, one of my, one of my favorite, small distillers uh up there with like you know anchor distilleries uh whiskeys really really great stuff you said woodenville woodenville rye yeah woodenville, woodenville rye. that's what it's called woodenville yeah i've got i've got family up in that part of the country i'll have to go oh start bringing some boxes back cases i'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll split them with you it's it's not sold here in japan as far as i know uh, it's it's only you can get whistle pig now i they started uh, importing that but i have not seen woodenville uh mm-hmm. Woodenville people, if you're listening, time to time to export to Japan, please. There you go. Well, uh, Matt, this has been fantastic. Really appreciated you taking the time to record not just one, but two episodes of Japan Distilled with me to talk about the late, great, amazing, too many adjectives to do justice, Shokichi Takamine. He is just such a great person. I really wanted to write about him in my book, but it didn't quite fit. Um, but in the future, I really hope to return to him because he is a great, great uh, uh, figure in history and just a great guy all around. Yep. No question. Uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show. And I'm sure there will be future opportunities. And I look forward to you joining Christopher and I for the finals of the cocktail competition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe we get our recipes together. Maybe I can do a reading from my book. If you uh, if you enjoyed this and you enjoy deep dives into Japanese uh, culture of all sorts, Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World is available on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. Uh, by all means, please check it out. Again, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and definitely have you on the show again. Hello, everyone. Christopher here. Just dropping by to remind you that the Japan Distilled Home bartending competition is about to end. We need your entries, your homemade cocktail recipe entries by the end of February so that we can 
take them out and give them a spin in a real bar with a real bartender to see how they stack up. That's right. And thanks for stopping by, Christopher. We missed you on the pod the last few weeks. But yeah, everyone, home cocktail should be relatively easily replicable. No crazy infusions or that sort of thing if you want to win. Has to be a Shochu or Awamori base. Preferably a brand that we have relatively easy access to. Otherwise, we'll have to find a replacement, which is not a problem for us, but we'll make do. And Christopher and I will look at all the submissions. We'll choose probably the top five that we think sound most interesting. We're not going to make all of the drinks. And then we'll go to a bar and have a guy make them together. And and Matt Alt's going to join us. So you've got your three judges. And we look forward to your entries. Again, do end of February. Please submit via private message on Twitter or Instagram to the Japan Distilled account. And good luck. Thank you all very much for listening. If you're not already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening. It really helps others find the show. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at Japan Distilled. Please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for show notes on this and every episode. And of course, we have our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday live stream every Tuesday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And finally, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash japandistilled. Kanpai. Kanpai. Kanpai.